Okay, great. Um, so welcome to this session on what's new in Open, open Philanthropy's global health and wellbeing work. For this session, we're joined by two speakers from the Open Philanthropy team, Norma Altschuler and James Snowden. Norma leads Open Philanthropy's Global Aid Policy and Advocacy Grant Program, which aims to increase aid budgets and improve the cost effectiveness of existing aid. Prior to Open Philanthropy, Norma worked at Hewlett Foundation, improving government's use of, of evidence in decision making. She was on the founding team of the Global Innovation Fund, which helped start, which she helped start after time at USAID's Development Innovation Ventures. And she's also worked at Give Directly, D1 The World, and Mathematica Policy Research. Uh, James is a program officer working on the Effective Altruism Global Health and Wellbeing team at Open Philanthropy. Uh, before this, he worked at GiveWell as a researcher and grant maker in public health policy. Um, just as a, a reminder before we welcome James and Norma, uh, we'll have some time for Q&A at the end of the talks. So throughout the talk, please um, enter any questions that you might have in the swap card app. And you can also vote for your favorite questions and we'll um, try to prioritize those in the Q&A. Okay, um, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming James and Norma. Thanks so much, Bridget. Yeah, so just to give the motivation for the talk, um, I think there's a stereotype of the work that effective altruism does in global health and development. And it's something like delivering basic commodities uh, to people living in low middle income countries. So cash, bed nets, deworming. And it hasn't changed much over the last 10 years. We're doing a lot of the same things that we were a long time ago. I think this stereotype is like, 40% uh, true, um, and actually a really good thing. Uh, I don't think there's many kind of movements or communities that could really keep plugging away at the same thing and do so much good over so much time. You know, the point is to help people as much as possible. It's not to pursue novelty for its own sake. So GiveWell to date has moved about a billion dollars uh, to its top recommendations. Uh, it estimates those donations will save about 150,000 lives. To put that into context, there's about 150 times the number of people who are at this conference this weekend. I think that's an incredible achievement. And those of you who've donated to give well should be extremely proud to be part of that. But I think it also misses a lot, which we'll get into. So in this presentation, I'll give an overview of our grant making last year, highlighting some of the newer areas we've been working in. Um, I'll also talk about public health regulation, which is a new program we're hoping to launch soon. And then Norma will dive deep into global aid policy, one of the new programs we started last year. She'll also say a little bit about what this means for you uh, and expand on our plans for this year. So this year, OpenPhil's global health and wellbeing team spent about $225 million uh, in three somewhat familiar areas. So that's just under half of our budget for the year. So we're thrilled to continue supporting GiveWell's top charities. Uh, our farm animal welfare team continues to fund work across fish welfare, alternative proteins, wild animal welfare research, and corporate campaigns. And we've moved more than $30 million in grants for scientific research, uh, most of which was to biomedical research. But over half our spending was in newer areas you're probably less familiar with. So GiveWell does a lot of grant making outside its top recommendations, uh, and I hope a lot of you got to see Olivia Larson's talk uh, yesterday evening where she talked about some of that work. Uh, we also launched three new program areas last year, which is the most we've ever launched in a single year. Uh, global aid policy, led by Norma, which she'll tell you about later. South Asian air quality, uh, led by Santosh Harish. And effective altruism with a focus on global health and wellbeing, which is my program. 
Finally, we ran a regranting challenge. So we allocated about $150 million to other grant makers in areas like education, climate, and malnutrition. So now I'm going to talk about a program that we're hoping to launch this year, uh, Public Health Regulation. So what is public health regulation? Um, I think one way of dividing it is into kind of behavioral risk factors, so things like alcohol or tobacco, uh, where you might be able to make progress by, for example, taxing it um, and reducing the health burden. You can also think about environmental pollution, so things like lead exposure and, and air pollution. Um, and these are basically all areas where, rather than delivering commodities and goods and services to people, we think we can have an impact by advocating for and providing technical assistance to design good policy. Importantly, these risk factors cut across lots of different disease categories. So alcohol kills people directly through liver cirrhosis, but it also contributes to the burden of tuberculosis, uh, traffic injuries, self-harm, stroke, and, and other diseases as well. So why do I think this is exciting? Well, first of all, it's hugely neglected relative to the burden. And, and I'm going to speak very broadly about all of these areas. I'm kind of cramming them together slightly, and, and slightly different factors apply to each. But um, if you look at the table uh, on this slide, Alcohol is estimated by the global burden of disease uh, to cause about twice as many dollies as either malaria or HIV. But it receives 500 times less funding than malaria and 2,000 times less funding than HIV. I should say this isn't a particularly fair comparison, and I do think it kind of misses some things around the edges. So, for example, the, the downstream consequences of smoking or alcohol, so things like lung cancer or COPD, you know, that's just not counted as funding within that bucket. And so I think, as ever, when you're making these comparisons, you have to be kind of cautious. Uh, and it really depends on how you draw the circles around things. But I do think these differences point at something quite real. Um, and I do think there's also a systemic explanation. So a lot of health funding goes to treat specific diseases. And that's kind of disease categories is like how we've decided to make the world legible, and it's how we've carved up the world. And I think you know, that's how like, sub-departments in the WHO might be labeled. You have the malaria team, the NTDs team. Um, and that means that's where a lot of the budgets flow. And some of these areas that cut across, like all of these different disease categories can get neglected. So say you, you buy the neglectedness argument. Uh, what about tractability? Well, I don't think it's going to be easy. Uh, you need both in, enactment of policies, but also enforcement. Uh, you've got to engage with challenging government processes. And a lot of these problems aren't straightforward. You know. Lead exposure and air pollution are not just one problem, it's a myriad of different problems caused by different sources where you might need to engage with different parts of government to make progress. But I do think longer timescales give a lot of reason for optimism. So in the United States, uh, the, the burden from lead exposure uh, declined over 90% between 1978 and 2017. In Sri Lanka, uh, after banning certain pesticides in the late 90s, suicide rates fell by over 40%. In Russia, alcohol consumption fell alongside mortality between 2003 and 2016, following a period of really heavy regulation. And we think all of these policies and events caused huge uh, improvements in population-level health. So I think there are really good reasons to think these are promising areas to work on. They're systematically neglected relative to their burden, and there are reasons to think it's possible to make progress. I think there are also a lot of reasons for skepticism, and there are a lot of other caveats I've had to skip over in the interest of time, so I'm looking forward to the, the Q&A. Um, I should also say this isn't a completely new area for us. So uh, GiveWell's made over $30 million in grants already over the last few years, um, and we've also seen early signs of progress. Uh, Reset Alcohol is a consortium of organizations, uh, many of whom previously worked on tobacco control, pushing for alcohol taxes in, in six different countries. 
Um, overnight, GiveWell became the largest funder of alcohol policy with one $15 million grant. GiveWell and Open Philanthropy have also funded Pura, uh, the Center for Global Development, and the Lead Exposure Elimination Project to work on lead exposure. We're starting to see some clues about different sources of exposure from PureF's work. Uh, LEAP, which is you know, an organization that came out of the EA community, has had some traction pushing for enforcement of regulations on lead paint. And I should say, this is actually a lot of that work was you know, before OpenPhil funded LEAP. And the Center for Global Development has helped to elevate the issues in multilateral groups like the G7. We're seeing a lot of progress in lead exposure at the moment. It's a very exciting space. And then finally, I wanted to highlight, you know, to my knowledge, what I think is the first EA contribution to policy change in low- and middle-income countries, uh, which is work that the Center for Pesticide Suicide Prevention did to advocate for the restriction of certain pesticides in Nepal and in Tamil Nadu. So I think this is really exciting progress, and we're thrilled to be in a position to hire a specialized program officer uh, to help make sure these programs can deliver as much impact as possible. So thanks for listening, everyone. Um, I'm going to hand over to Norma Outshuler to tell you about her program on global aid policy um, and offer some advice on how to have an impact with your career. Uh, as well as being a colleague, uh, Norma's been my friend and mentor for the last four years. Uh, she's got over 15 years of experience in the development sector, um, working at a huge range of organizations. Um, so I think you're going to find what she has to say valuable. Thank you. Thank you, James. That means a lot coming from you. And before I dive in, I'm hoping that my OpenPhil colleagues who are in the room can raise their hands. A lot of them have been involved directly or indirectly in the work um, that I've done, especially Sam Anshul over there. So as James said, I'm going to tell you today about our Global Aid Policy Program, which we started when I joined in April of last year. First, I'm going to just talk a little bit about the motivation for the program. Then I'll tell you about two of our lines of grant making. I'll also offer some, some advice that I wish somebody had given me a number of years ago, and then finally tell you a bit about our plans for the coming year. So why global aid policy? Well, first, this is a big and important prize. Government aid spending is about $186 billion on aid. This is from donor governments around the world. And to give you a sense of the scale of that, if you look at this slide, you'll see that each dollar sign represents the roughly $600 million that GiveWell directs per year. So global aid policy is roughly the size of 312 GiveWells. But unlike GiveWell's spending, global aid policy varies dramatically in its cost effectiveness. Some of the spending may be up there, right up there with the GiveWell cost effectiveness. A lot of it is not super impactful, and some might even be harmful. So for us, this presents two opportunities. One, we would like there to be more aid, or in this world of Ukraine, many other challenges, prevent aid cuts. We think on average, resources going to social spend, spending and development in low and middle income countries is good. And second, we would like aid to be more cost effective, to take some portion of those very many dollars and get them a little bit closer to give well level cost effectiveness. So now let me tell you about our work in Japan. Japan is one of several examples of, of our work in neglected donor markets. So by that, I mean countries where there's a fair amount of aid spending or a lot of aid spending, but just not that much going on with aid advocacy or aid technical assistance. Japan is huge as a donor. It's the third biggest, spending about $17.5 billion a year. It's also neglected from an aid advocacy perspective. 
So as you can see on this graph, for every $100 that the US government spends on aid, there's conservatively about 24 cents trying to influence that. Maybe more than, maybe more than 40 cents, depending on how you count it. In Japan, for every, dollar the government, for every $100 the government there is spending on aid, there's about a cent and a half trying to influence it. So this leads to the question, can we do anything about it? And I honestly started out a bit skeptical that we could be helpful. In Japan, civil society in general is relatively weak. There's not much of a culture, and in fact, it's often considered rude to ask the government to do something differently. I don't speak any Japanese, and was coming in with very little knowledge of the political culture. But Gates had contributed to more than $3 billion of health aid increases over the past six years. And by, after I got to know some people in Japan, I became convinced that first of all, the Gates team and others could serve as helpful entry points, and second of all, that the political climates were favorable for future change. So we decided it was worth a shot. What are we actually trying to do there? Four policy goals. Grow the aid budget. Second, increase the portion of aid going to health, which we think on average is more cost effective than the average aid dollar. Third, improve the quality of health aid spending. And in particular, we think that there's some programs like malaria that really punch above their weight from an aid perspective. Finally, shift more infrastructure aid to higher impact areas. So infrastructure aid is huge in Japan. It plus energy, which I sort of grouped together, are half of the Japanese aid budget. There's huge variation in the value of this spending. There's some interventions like roads that are common that are good, maybe a little bit worse than cash transfers according to our team's research. There's other programs that are really surprised me with their extremely high cost effectiveness. For example, access to cell phone signals for the first time, access to electricity that's stable for businesses, many, many times better than roads. So if we can shift a portion of this $8.5 billion prize towards some of the highest impact infrastructure interventions, that could be really big impact. Okay, what can we possibly do about all of this? Well, there's three levers that we're trying to pull on. The first lever is geopolitics. For most governments, including here in the US, geopolitics are a key motivator for aid decisions. In Japan, top of mind for the government is the rise of China and the desire to have strong allies with other countries, other countries aboard the Pacific in this brave new world. In part for that reason, there's a history of Japan generally doing what the US government asks it to do on global aid. So for example, a big portion of that $3 billion in, more than $3 billion in health spending that I mentioned came from contributions to multilateral organizations like the Global Fund. And in several of those cases, the US government asking to pitch in was a big, um, was a big part of the, of the reason that seemed to motivate that wins along with other work such as the Gates, Gates's advocacy. So we're trying this for the first time with, with malaria aid in Japan, specifically bringing in congressional champions of malaria funding, which the US has a lot of, and leaders of the US's large technocratic malaria program, the President's Malaria Initiative, to ask the Japanese government to co-invest with them. We're also trying this on an even trickier topic, which is Japan's relationship with Korea. 
Korea and Japan, as I'm sure many of you know, have a historically complicated and fraught relationship with Korea being a former Japanese colony. The Japanese prime minister and a number of senior leaders in Korea are interested in building stronger ties between the countries as they think about the rise of China. We're testing whether global health aid can be a low stakes way to start collaboration. Specifically, the public health dialogues around each country's global health aid. We think that politicians in both countries may be motivated to show up by the geopolitical relationship. Maybe while there, they'll either develop some intrinsic additional motivations for global health aid, or see this as a low stakes <coughs> entry point to collaboration to move more, will result in moving more dollars towards health. We don't know if it'll work, but it seems worth a shot. The second level lever is business interests and advocacy. In this top picture, you can see the CEOs of a number of Japanese tech companies and my counterpart at the Gates Foundation meeting with Japan's foreign minister. They're saying, please do more in health aid. It's good for our business as well as the right thing to do. There's, these are people who run things like, com like companies that produce health commodities. So we also want to pull that lever as we think about, for example, more malaria funding. We're hoping that, that, that because Japan produces a number of insecticide treated bed nets, that that can be a powerful lever. I should say that you know, the number one criteria that Japan uses when evaluating aid projects is what does this do for Japanese businesses. Final lever is field building, trying to build institutions that will continue to push the needle on aid advocacy and policy over time. In the bottom picture, you can see a 22-year-old named Kazimo Yoto meeting with Japan's prime minister. Kazimo is, this, is the CEO of a tech company and has also started a, a different business that helps Gen Zers <coughs> engage in giving, sort of lending their voice in policy discussions. Somehow, he's managed to have karaoke nights and sushi dinners with a variety of people at the minister level in Japan, which is very, very unusual. There's just a lot of appetite for young energy. He's playing a role in a charity incubation program that we're hoping will result in more health aid advocates and in aid advocates that are especially dynamic and bringing this kind of, ener this kind of energy and drive. So that's Japan. Let me turn to telling you a little bit about a different line of our work, our work with USAID's chief economist. Many of you probably know that USAID is one of the biggest aid agencies out there, specifically the biggest bilateral or single government aid, aid agency. They spend about $29 billion a year. Many of you also probably share my excitement that Dean Carlin, one of the leaders in the Evidence for Development movement, was recently appointed their chief economist. Now, Dean is coming in with some political support. Sam Powers, the head of USAID, has said we, that she would like this office to have more, more voice in terms of setting priorities, doing research that can inform USAID spending. But this office has historically been and is continuing to be largely advisory. So one has to really sort of earn impact. So we're trying to help in three ways. One is bolstering external support making sure that there are voices in DC and on Capitol Hill, reinforcing that this is an exciting opportunity. Second, offering insights from our own research. There's many issues that Dean's office is being approached by, that people within different parts of USAID working on specific subject matters 
are open to advice on. In many cases, the existing development economics research that Dean is most close to doesn't speak to that. And so we're offering some insights from our own research and seeing if some of those insights may end up being helpful. Third, and I think most importantly, we're paying for staff and data systems that would be hard for USAID to fund or to fund quickly. As uh, many of you probably know, government hiring is hard and time consuming. USAID has caps on the number of staff that it can hire, and it takes many, many months to get someone in the door, even when there is um, budget. So we're paying for around three, which is about half of his, um, if the small office's staff. I'm gonna go into a fair amount of detail about one woman who's joining his team, Caitlin Tulloch, because I think that her work is an example of the kind of ways that people in this room might want to get involved in aid work. Caitlin co-authored J-PAL's cost effectiveness guidelines a number of years ago, and is now coming from the International Rescue Committee. While there, she's done really impressive work to, on cost efficiency, on higher cost per output. Sorry, higher output for, for the same cost. Um, specific, for example, this organization, the International Rescue Committee, runs a lot of cash transfer programs. So she's come up with guidelines like, let's try not to do cash transfer programs if we're reaching fewer than 1,000 than 1, households. Generally, the overheads are just really high that way. If we are, let's consider ways to save, to have more money reach the poor, like giving all of the money in one lump sum. Most impressively, though, she was in a position, like the position that Dean is in, without formal authority, at least to start with. And she's gotten people to actually act on those guidelines. So we estimate that she's influenced $155 million to be 43% more efficient. So that's the same as having another $72 million drop from the sky. We're, trying to, we're hoping that with the much larger dollars that USAID, influence, USAID controls, that she'll be able to have even greater influence in terms of things like how do we have sanitation projects go further with the same level of resources. And again, it's the relationship skills here and history of asking what do decision makers need and how can I help with that that give me optimism. All right, so what does all of this mean for you? Well, first of all, EA is now, now in a place of being funding constrained. James told you about some of the things that GiveWell is finding, that we're finding, and we are now in a place of having more ideas than we have funding. This means a couple things. First of all, your personal donations matter. Second of all, if you're thinking broadly about career opportunities, this is a great time to think about fundraising as a career path. And or just work on the side talking to your friends about the impact of some of SMEA giving opportunities. James is doing really important work to build the field of EA fundraising organizations. I encourage you to come to our office hours if this might be of interest right after this so you can learn more from him about what's out there and how you might be able to help. Second, and turning more towards policy advice as well as career advice, I think that EAs should more often start with what's tractable. People in this community often spend a lot of time trying to get very deep on what is the most high impact place, what is the most neglected place? And those are all important questions that I ask too. But within a subset of things that are, that are neglected and high impact, more often, I would just ask much, more, much sooner, what can I personally do to help? What am I personally good at? 
So if you start with a list of all of the geographies in the world that one might think about from an, from an aid perspective, all the donor markets, Japan would be on that list, but it wouldn't obviously be number one. The reason that that's one of the neglected markets where I've spent the most time, and certainly the neglected market where OpenPhil so far has spent the most money, is that I was able to get stuff done there. I was able to develop a relationship with a Gates counterpart who was unusually um, collaborative and, unusual and helpful, and build some other relationships. And the kind of things that the Japanese ecosystem needs are the kinds is well suited to the kind and size of money that Japan that OpenPhil can provide. So, for example, the Middle East also looks really promising, but there, my current hypothesis is that it's better suited to Gates, which can co-invest hundreds of millions with governments there, and which can be far more relational in a way that is in country in a way that's hard for us. Another um, sort of example of being tractable, moving me away from things, is is the infrastructure work in Japan. You heard earlier about what a big prize that is and about the hunger I have to sort of try to chip away at some of that $8.5 billion being more cost effective. But I couldn't immediately find great grantees there. So I'm focusing on health aid for now. I've seen again and again in my career, and I think this is an important thing to think about for all of you too, that sometimes if you succeed in one area, those relationships, that knowledge, that credibility can help you take on even harder challenges. So I don't know, but I'm hoping that if we're successful within the health space, we'll be able to get things done on infrastructure aid eventually. All right, the third lesson, connecting analytical and relational work. I'm gonna talk more about the, why we can't move forward right away on infrastructure in Japan, because I think that this is an example of the kinds of gaps that we see elsewhere, including in um, geographies where a higher percentage of you may speak the language. One, in, one of the challenges with so within infrastructure aid, we have some research that shows stuff that's worked in, other con in a variety of contexts. We have some advocates already, not enough advocates, but some advocates who could advance simple top line messages, fund more of X. What's missing is two things. One is people who have the, the just knowledge of the Japanese system, as well as the knowledge and appreciation for the research to help us think about external validity through the Japanese government systems. So we know that first time access to a cell phone is really impactful. I don't know if the Japanese government tried to roll out a cell phone access program, how well that would go at actually reaching first time households versus people who already have cell phones. I'd like to find people who could think more about that, those sorts of issues. And the second comes back to relationships to people who can really understand what are the needs and constraints that people who are working on Japan infrastructure in the Japanese government at a variety of levels face, and where might evidence-based things be a useful tool for them. I also talked a bit about why the, I think the dean's office will succeed or fail based on the strength of relational work. Finally, I think EA should do more to work in, for, and around non-EA organizations. There's a couple, two reasons to do this. One reason is learning. I feel really lucky that I was able to spend time in government and understand and just have a lot of empathy for the challenges that come with that work, as well as how leaders and mid-level civil servants like I used to be can make change under the right circumstances. Similarly, there's a lot of advocacy organizations and research organizations that are making things happen at a pace that I think that others can learn from with spending time inside of them. The second reason is impact. 
And I think sometimes impact leads you to get out of the way. So to say, okay, there's certain things that parts of global health advocacy that the existing community is actually doing quite well, I can add value elsewhere. But I think there also are times when one can just add additional muscle by virtue of being a smart and accomplished person, and or where EAs can bring special niches. In particular, you know, these questions about maximizing impact are things that are not all, some, but not all components of the global aid and global health advocacy communities ask questions about. So for example, I think there's some really potentially interesting opportunities on better subnational targeting of certain health programs, or of thinking about you know, within the range of evidence-based stuff out there, which ones really should be top of the list if we're, as we think about trade-offs. So those are some of my thoughts. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and pushback um, in our questions and in and set time, and then again in our office hours for those of you who can join us. Um, but before turning over to your questions, James and I just wanted to tell you a little bit about some things we're doing this year and about potential opportunities to get involved. First of all, um, hiring. I hope uh, none of you have plans tomorrow or tonight, because if you are excited about helping pick our next cause areas, please apply by midnight tomorrow for our cause prioritization, prioritization internship. We just posted a chief of staff opportunity for Alexander Berger. As James said, we're likely to hire a program officer in public health regulation, and more of these opportunities will come on online. It's important to say that you know, we, often people are competitive for open-fill jobs, both here and other things we may have around, for example, operational stuff, without as much sort of expertise as you might think you need in the, some of the specifics. So I actually had only done a minority of my work in aid policy specifically versus other global health and development stuff before taking this job. So we're also going to continue to build out new programs, refining strategy, strengthening relationships, and broadening our work, including in areas we've talked less about today, like scientific research, global health, R&D, and their quality work. And finally, we're included with the help of our new interns. We'll be exploring new cause areas and publishing new research. And if you want to stay more, you could take out your phone right away and subscribe to our blog so you can see uh, more of these things as they come online. So thank you, and now we're really excited to hear your questions. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, James and Norma. Um, we've got around 24 minutes for questions, and we do have some questions uh, in the app, but we've probably got time for more. And I'm sure a lot of good questions out there in the crowd, so um, please uh, please do write them down. Um, and just a note, make sure you're writing them in the questions tab. I think there's a chat tab, but if they're in there, I might not see them, so um, please write them in the questions tab. Uh, okay, great. Um, to start off, there's a couple of questions which probably, James, you're probably best to answer, that um, are around how you're ensuring that, uh, I guess, the regulations that are put in place in countries are actually resulting in change or are being followed. Um, so one question here is, how can you ensure programs and outcomes have the impacts you expect to have and don't have any negative side effects in the actual implementation without boots on the ground? Yeah, what a great question. Yeah, so I think, I think the reason, one of the reasons this question is important is because um, it doesn't do anything to have like a regulation on the books. Uh, and in a lot of low middle income countries, uh, enforcement of these regulations is often very difficult. Um, 
So I was in India recently, and uh, they they have quite quite stringent um, seatbelt regulations. But I don't know if anyone else has been lately. You, lots of cars have the have the buckle, but um, but, but nothing to plug it into. Uh, so so this can like happen, and it's real. Um, it, it's kind of case by case how how we're dealing with this, um, and so. In terms of like not having boots on the ground, you know, our grantees have boots on the ground, so you know that's a, a lot of what, what their work focuses on. Um, uh, so let's say, so in alcohol, we haven't got to the point where we've had policy changes yet, but when we do, we'll be monitoring alcohol consumption uh, to make sure that they've had the intended impact. It's not always going to be that easy to tell. You often have to piece it together. You're not going to be able to do a randomized controlled trial at the kind of policy level, uh, but sometimes you can get clues just from like what happens to the curve. Um, this has actually been an issue in the pesticide work. So while we have got regulations on the books, it looks like immediately the, um, the policy wasn't immediately enforced. And often these things can take a bit of time to, to flow through. And so there's still pesticides on the shelves that have been banned. Um, and so it'll take a few years to, to get to that point. Um, and similarly with the lead work, um, well, the lead exposure elimination project is doing some really interesting work actually based on this, this issue. Where, Lots and lots of countries already have regulation of lead paint in place. Um, you know, everybody agrees lead paint is bad and, and we shouldn't use it. Um, but they've been going and running market surveys in, in countries which already have these regulations in place and have broadly found that it hasn't been enforced. So they're trying to pressurize the government to, to do that. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, those are like some of the things we're doing. There's no, I think, like catch-all answer. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, we've also got a couple of questions which are um, around those interventions. So firstly, somebody uh, wanted to know what um, pesticide suicide is. So if you could uh, give a brief explainer of that. Yeah, sorry, I should have explained that better. Um, so roughly speaking, and the data is quite bad on this for various reasons, but roughly speaking, about 800,000 people a year uh, die, by, die by suicide. Um, so that's a, quite a bit more than malaria, actually. Um, and of that, somewhere between, I think, 100 and 300,000 is my best guess, uh, die by deliberately ingesting pesticides. Um, it's one of the most common uh, methods of suicide, um, mostly in agricultural communities where pesticides are readily available uh, in South Asia. Um, the, there might also be a big problem in Africa, but we, we know less about that because of uh, data issues. Um, the theory of change of this program is that uh, if people attempt suicide with, um, basically pe pesticides have a really wide range of toxicity. Um, and so people can attempt suicide with less toxic pesticides, they're more likely to survive. And then people who survive a suicide attempt um, actually often will go on and live, live good, happy lives. Uh, so I think it's only something like, I mean, this is still a number that's far too high, but something like 15% of people who survive a suicide will reattempt. Um, so a lot of people will, will get, get over that hump and, and, and live better lives. Um, so that's you know, the very basics of the problem. Um, there's also other things I could say as well. But. Yeah. Sorry, was that 15 or 50? Uh, 15%. 15, 15, one five. five. OK, one good. Five, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's um, better. <laughs> um, so I think it, you also mentioned some of the success um, Russia has had in decreasing alcohol consumption. Um, so we've got one question here about uh, whether there are any outcomes improved as a result of this massive decrease. Um, I also have my own question of, um, if you've got information on what those what the regulations were that led yeah. to that decrease. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll answer your question first. So yeah. it's really hard to pick this apart 
um, there's just like a period of time they threw everything at it, mm -hmm. taxes, um, like better enforcement of illegal alcohol manufacturing, uh, marketing regulations, availability restrictions. And so because all of these things happened in like over the course of like five to 10 years and there was a real like government effort, it's really hard to kind of tease apart exactly what made the difference. Mm -hmm. um, we do have like evident, like more micro evidence from other sources that like taxes are a really, really important part of this puzzle. Um, and I think you know, that's gonna be a big focus of, of the work we're doing there. Um, sorry, what was the other question? Um, whether there were outcomes, good outcomes that have been seen oh, as a result. Yeah, again, so hard to, hard to well, we don't have an RCT, um, but all-cause mortality fell dramatically during that period um, and seemed to fall in the most pronounced way with alcohol-related diseases. Um, so, you know, I can't say with like 100% causal rigor, but, but I think there are like strong clues towards that had a really big effect on, on population health. Yeah. Okay. Um, I should say as well, Russia was the country that by far had the worst problem with alcohol consumption. Um, so the, if, if one was being really skeptical, I would say part of the story here might be regression to the mean. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look at the kind of policies, it's got to be part of it. Um, I'd be very surprised if that was just wrapped. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so we've got a question here about... Um, yeah, how do you recommend that EAs build relational skills that are um, valuable to building the relationships that can change key decision makers' minds? Um, and Norma, I might uh, ask you to answer that first if, if you're happy. Sure, I'm happy to start. And again, this is the kind of thing I hope we can have a two-way conversation about in the office hours. I mean, I think first the first thing is just the mindset, right? And the mindset of both this is important, but also that one has a lot to learn from non-EAs on this topic. I think the second is starting from, and the second is what I said about working in non-EA organizations, which I think on average do better on this front than EA organizations. And I would say a third is just really being in the mindset of understanding and empathizing with other people's needs, opportunities, and incentives, including from a just sort of genuine human place. So like when I was at USAID, um, there was a, well, I won't get into too specific, but there was a person in a different department who, I constantly disagreed with and as I was trying to push what I thought was an evidence-based agenda. But after a number of months, as I sort of started to understand really more what were her motivations, what did she think we were missing in terms of, for example, technical knowledge from other parts of the agency that wasn't necessarily coming out of the same kind of research agenda but was still valuable, there was a lot that both just enabled me to get more done with her but also changed my mind about the importance of other contexts and other sources of information. So I think really being in that place of learning is important. I'll say, say sneak in one more, which is just focus back coming back to like what's tractable, like focus on where you can get things done, right? There were other people in USAID who I was not gonna get anything done with. And so saying, all right, where am I starting to see interest? Where is somebody actually open to um, to, to sort of opportunities is much more important than like what looks good on, on paper. Yeah. James, do you have anything to add to no, I normally ask Norma. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, okay, another question, probably best for Norma, but um, also do you got thoughts as well, James? But um, outside of health, what aid policy cause areas are you excited about improving? Goodness. Um, well, so I would, s there's so much to say. I think that 
in general, there are a number of things around where we spend money um, that one should be thinking about, that, that there's big opportunities around. So obviously, certain diseases are more prevalent in certain places. Money goes further on in countries that are lower income on average. Some of those things are not going to be particularly tractable. So you know, the US government gives a lot of its money to countries in the, countries in the Middle East that for reasons that are geopolitical. But there are corners where one can make a difference. And so for example, subnational targeting is an area that I think is really interesting. So if a certain amount of money is going to Uganda, where within Uganda can money go the furthest is, an, is a sort of an example of something that cuts across sectors where I think, um, where I think there's real opportunities and opportunities that EAs in particular might be good at. Yeah, I guess related to that, um, do you have thoughts on whether it's more tractable to increase aid quantity or the um, effectiveness of aid? So I think it depends, and I think, and I have, I don't think that coming up with like one meta global answer is as helpful as thinking about the contextual circumstances. I would say that one area, I, I think you can sort of think about it in three buckets. One is overall aid levels. One is the amount of aid going to specific things like malaria or tuberculosis, and a third is like effectiveness cross-cutting and within particular areas. I think an area where I am particularly focused on is the increasing amount of money going to specific cost-effective things. I think that trying that is um, especially high return and sometimes more, in some contexts more tractable than trying to sort of influence the mechanics of government to be more effective, although there are some opportunities there. I think when it comes to overall aid levels, the most, many, most of the successes right now will look like preventing cuts. Um, and particularly, you know, the refugee crisis is meaning that when, from, from money that for, for to support refugees in country in places like Europe actually is counted as aid. So a lot of that means that aid is effectively decreasing in a lot of places. So there are some countries like Korea and Japan where I think there's room to actually grow. But in other cases, the fight is really around preventing cuts. Um, sticking on discussions of age for um, a minute, um, so I think you mentioned in the talk that for Japan, uh, their I guess first aim in the aid is to increase or increase this, improve the situation for Japanese businesses, or at least that's a, a key aim. Um, I don't know in my country, Australia, it's also um, you know in the mission of the aid program that it's to improve Australia's interests as well. Um, what do you think is the possibility of changing that? And there's a related question here of um, foreign aid being used as a form of soft power, and would it having this role um, make it harder to focus on effectiveness, or do you see uh, difficulties there in, in focusing on effectiveness? I mean, I think that, so can we change? I think that there, I am most focused on, and I think it's most tractable to focus on, within the broad existing paradigm of geopolitics matter, business interests matter, how can we advance things that sort of check those boxes while doing good? So for example, malaria funding is, a, is an example of a place, a thing in Japan that we think we can make a case for based on business interests and based on potential geopolitical incentives if there's international co-investment. I, it is definitely dangerous to to be to the, that there are these other well the southern incentives will always be out there but I am mindful of you know it would be better to be in a world in which they did not exist I think that I have not found opportunities to think about totally revamping the paradigm. 
But I do hope that if we continue to make the case for things like malaria funding, in part based on impact, that that will continue to be part, that will be a greater part of the conversation than it is right now. Okay, great. Um, uh, switching back to a question for James, um, I think you mentioned in the slides that one of the new program areas is the South Asian Air Quality Program. Um, can you t tell us a little bit about the kinds of activities that are being funded in that program? Yeah, so this is a program that's coming up to about a year year old now. Um, so being led by our program officer who, who lives in Delhi, uh, Santosh Harish. Um, a lot of it is focused on very upstream activities. Um, so there is a lot of, you know, air quality is a very like salient issue in India. Um, you can, you can feel it, <laughs> um, and it's kind of reported on in, in the media. Um, and so a lot of the work has been built uh, on like you know, funding think tanks, um, funding uh, groups to like bring this to media attention and really kind of push push a narrative. It, it is. Um, it is a kind of complicated political environment as well uh, at times, and so I think there is a need to kind of be very cooperative with the government, um, particularly when you're coming in as like external funders. Um, what, one of the things that I'm, I think is most interesting, or just a kind of very like concrete grant that we made was to, um, I forget how much it was now, but it was to scale up uh, rural air quality sensors. Um, so I, I don't know if some of you might be familiar with Purple Air, which is how you know, I found out about the air quality in, in California. And um, uh, we, we made a grant to, to scale that up in, in lots of different rural areas. And there's lots of things you can do with that information. Partly it's like monitoring how high are PM 2.5 levels. But you can also combine that with satellite data um, and kind of different data points on, you know, where are people doing things like burning stubble or, or where are like uh, coal-fired power plants. And you can kind of track how the uh, kind of air pollution like moves across different areas in a way that you couldn't do just with satellite data alone. Um, so it's, it's a whole bunch of areas. I think we haven't like really narrowed our strategy like in a very targeted way, um, but that's just some examples of, of the grants we've been. Yeah, okay, great. Um, there's also a question around the effectiveness or the quality of the evidence of effectiveness of lead elimination projects. Um, I was wondering if you have opinions on that? Yeah. Or I guess the question, a better framing of the question, which the person wrote is, um, how confident are you that lead elimination is a good intervention? Yeah, so lead elimination is not one intervention, it's a whole bunch of things. Um, so I feel like pretty confident in the, uh, that, that like lead exposure is bad for you. Um, <laughs> I, I actually like, it's actually not that easy to look at the um, like size of the effect. A lot of this relies on kind of observational studies, um, but given what we know about the biomechanics of lead, like whether it has a big effect at all is not really an open question at, at this point. Um, this has been, I'm normally more cautious than this, but like this has been known for a very long time. Um, I think the thing, the part where it gets really tricky is what are the biggest sources of exposure? Um, and that's a lot of the work that we funded early on is trying to get some more clues about like how much of it is paint? Like how much of it is cookware? Um, how much of it, how much of it is actually like blood lead levels might have come down since the removal of lead and gasoline, and that's just had a kind of delayed effect. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my kind of biggest uncertainty. Um, we, we funded uh, a group called Pure Earth um, to work on trying to understand this better. So they've gone into, in 25 different countries, they've gone into marketplaces and, and are testing different products to understand like 
you know, how much, um, how much that is like in each place. And there's been some interesting um, kind of takeaways from that. I think one is that like an, a, an issue that I wasn't aware of a few years ago was how much lead is in spices. And so lead mm. is often added to turmeric, um, basically to make it more yellow, uh, which is just the most insane thing for like people to do. Um, but it makes sense, right, when, when people aren't aware of these issues and, and they're just kind of following their incentives. Um, another is that like cookware, which is, um, you know, we, we've known about this in Mexico for a while, that there are kind of various traditional ways of, of like glazing cookware, uh, which can cause lead exposure. And that seems like it's an issue kind of outside Mexico as well, which is a surprise. But all of these things are kind of clues. Like, I, from a lot of my work at GiveWell, I was more used to the kind of killer study. Um, okay. And it's a different way of thinking, kind of trying to like piece together this evidence, which is never going to be like complete. Um, so yeah, it's a challenging problem. Sorry, what do you mean by a killer study? Can you? Uh, so you know, say you have like the gold standard RCT, which yeah. like went into you know uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you often don't. I kind of, you know, you look at that and you, you get really into like the details of that study and you try and, okay, like, you know, what, is it balanced a baseline and, and all of those things. Whereas it's a different, I think, mindset from trying to understand, okay, what could sources of, sources of lead exposure be? Mm -hmm. um, where it's kind of pulling together like evidence from these kind of marketplace studies. You're pulling together evidence from uh, household studies where people go household by household and try and understand, okay, like how high are blood lead levels and like do those people have packets of spice in their drawer. Um, so it's much more about like piecing together clues rather than about like statistical analysis. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so another question for Norma. Um, so with the amount of money going into lobbying and funding marketing for tobacco and alcohol products, what is GiveWell's take on how Tractable progresses in updating the relevant policies? I'm sorry, GiveWell slash OpenGlobe. I think this is a better no, question for you. Be. Yeah, we don't know. Um, I think it's going to be hard. Like, there has been some progress in tobacco control, um, and so I think there is. There's like a really fatalistic version of this argument, which I don't think people are making, which is like, you know, hundreds, of, well, more than hundreds of millions of dollars are going towards like marketing campaigns for, for tobacco. Like, how are we ever going to like match that? Mm -hmm. um, I think part of it is being right. Um, like, governments are not completely cynical um, and like do care to some level about the population of the health of their populations. Um, but I also think it's challenging. I mean, the way I frame this is like, we, we've got a really important, with alcohol specifically, um, I think it's much easier, by the way, I, I'm more optimistic in lead um, and in pesticides where for, for various reasons, I think industry interests are not as much opposed. Um, but in alcohol, it's more of a zero sum game, I think, between industry and uh, and, and, and regulatory activity. Um, and so I, I think this is just an open question. Um, and I think when you have like a really important problem, it's really neglected, I think we're basically gonna see how it goes over the next five years. Um, it's possible after five years, we'll think, oh, we couldn't make any progress, but it's also possible that we've, we've managed to make inroads. Yeah, okay. Um, and it does seem that there has been some global progress in uh, reducing harms from tobacco despite the tobacco industry lobbying. Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay, um, another question here about what kind of initiatives you wish people would start or were available for you to fund from an economic development standpoint. I would say, so we have some, our, some colleagues who are doing more research and thinking about 
opportunities around um, catch-up growth. There are some opportunities coming out of that that I think we'll be able to share a little more about soon. But I would say that more broadly, this I would come back to this sort of bridging between the technocratic and the relational. I think we generally have less awareness of existing, and um, I think there's room for a lot more organizations that are working with low and middle income country ministries of finance to think about um, sort of ways that information could be helpful to their decision making needs. Yeah. James, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I could say some things, but they wouldn't be, I think, that valuable. It's, um, yeah, it's not my personal area, but I know that the Openfields, Openfield has a course prioritization team that, that tries to kind of stack these areas against each other, and, and maybe next time they'll come. Yeah. And we'll have more to share. Yeah, okay, great. Um, so we've probably got time for one last question. Uh, so Norma, besides the two case studies you talked about today, so about Japan and USAID, um, what are examples of other aid policy work that OpenPhil is doing or considering or is potentially excited about? Sure. So one major area is neglected geographies. There's a bunch of other countries we're looking at. But I'll spend our last minute on something very different to give you a sense of the range of possibilities. So um, Chinese development finance is bigger than the amount of gov money that the US government is spending on aid and on development finance, so on you know, loans, including concessional loans. And it's this hugely powerful tool. Like Many countries around the world would rather borrow from China than from the US or other Western gov governments. Um, and so as we think about like where is the money, this really stands out. I don't think that we can get a lot done in China itself for various reasons, including some of the challenges of operating there. There's opportunities that we have. But they, what I'm really excited about is can we help low and middle income countries get better deals on loans from China. So we've made an experimental group to grant to a group called Aid Data that has a long history of working with ministries of finance and planning. The basic idea is twofold. One, more transparency about really crazy things. So for example, Uganda, they uncovered that Uganda was literally mortgaging part of its airport to pay for a loan and that was not something that had been in the public discourse. Is this what we want to be doing? Um, and second is just technical support to help um, people in African ministries of finance better understand what are the terms that other countries got with their loans, what is the true cost of this loan, looking at things besides the interest rate, and um, potentially from there be able to negotiate better deals that could result in more money for governments to spend on other needs, including self health and social services. Okay, great. Well, um, yeah, thank you so both so much. There is so much there that people could uh, talk about and, and more questions we could ask, but unfortunately we're out of time. Um, but you will be having office hours, I believe, straight after this uh, next door, so people can um, join you there for more questions and to maybe talk about the, um, I guess, hiring opportunities uh, to open philanthropy as well. So yeah, please join me in thanking um, Norma and James. And thanking Bridget. Yeah, thank you. Bridget.